Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. Today, we examine recent developments in politics and conflict in Africa. In order to explore those developments, we're fortunate to have with us today Zachariah Mampili, whom I will refer to as Zach, with his permission, uh, who is the Marx Endowed Chair and Professor of International Affairs at Baruch College of CUNY. He's recently held a fellowship from the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum to study the role of civil societies in response to armed conflict in several uh, African countries. He previously taught at Vassar College, Columbia University, and UCLA. He received his Ph.D. in political science at UCLA, which I think means he got his Ph.D. in the Ralph Bunch Hall at UCLA, making a connection between us before he ever knew that. Uh, and he's been a Fulbright Visiting Research Professor at the University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Thanks so much for joining us today, Zach Mampili. It's great to be here, John. Thanks. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's the end of the semester and everybody's pretty busy. So let's talk a little bit about the research that you did uh, with this uh, fellowship at the Holocaust Museum. It uh, basically addresses the uh, role of civilians in the face of mass atrocities. Can you tell us about your approach and what you found in that research? Sure. So with the uh, Simon Scott Center at the Holocaust Museum, as well as a number of partnership organizations uh, based in Sri Lanka, that, at the Alam Center for Policy Research, uh, in South Sudan, the Sud Institute, and in Congo, the Congo Research Group, uh, we engaged on a two-year study of the role of civilians and civil society uh, during episodes of mass violence and mass atrocities in particular. Um, and I think the, the sort of starting point for the larger project was uh, a paper that I had written a, a couple of years ago on the behavior of civilians living under the control of the Tamil Tiger Rebellion uh, in that country, and really wanting to understand, you know, how do civilians engage with violent actors, uh, especially in the face of, of actors uh, who may be interested in, in orchestrating large-scale mass atrocity episodes. Um, and what we sort of found in the paper um, was that, you know, there are, uh, the civilians actually possess agency uh, in ways that are often not particularly visible, but deeply meaningful. And so if you think about, you know, how civilians are often portrayed during a civil war or during a genocide, uh, the overwhelming image that comes to mind is that of the passive victim. Right. Civilians are, are are essentially reduced to bodies that are acted upon by forces that are larger than them. And if they have any agency at all, uh, it is the agency to flee the situation altogether. And so, you know, when you hear narratives around the Holocaust or the Rwandan genocide uh, around civilians, by and large, the, the most prevailing narrative is, is that of the individual who fled the violence. Right. Um, but the sort of empirical starting point that we wanted to examine both in the paper and then eventually in this larger Holocaust Museum project um, was that, you know, the vast majority of civilians are unable or unwilling to leave uh, the context in which they are existing. So if you think about uh, ISIS in, in Iraq and Syria, um, you know, something like a million people lived in Mosul under ISIS. Right. Uh, and very importantly, we shouldn't 
presume that that means that they endorsed ISIS in any way or that they were happy that ISIS had taken over their town. It's just that it, for a variety of different reasons, uh, whether attachment to property or that people were too elderly to leave uh, or that it's just really hard to, to abandon everything that you have in the world and, and flee, um, that many choose to stay and that they choose to push back against violent actors uh, in often very subtle but no less meaningful ways. Um, and so what we try to do in the report is to explore this dynamic uh, in multiple countries and in multiple locations within each of these countries, relying on our partner organizations uh, in a very collaborative and I think very generative uh, process uh, in order to uncover the, the very diverse ways that civilians try to uh, intervene into episodes of mass violence and to alter the trajectory of those episodes in substantive ways. It's fascinating and uh, important research that uh, raises, for me at least, lots of questions uh, about the directions this could all go in. And, um, you know, it is reminiscent of questions that perhaps are more familiar from my own, you know, research background about what people did in response to the Nazis, for example, you know, who stood up and did, did what, you know, Germans call civil courage, you know, who stood up for Jews who were threatened or those kinds of things. Um, and so I guess I wonder if you could, you know, get into this in greater depth and just talk a little bit about, you know, how this might apply in elsewhere in Africa or indeed elsewhere in the rest of the world. Yeah, so I think that, you know, obviously the, the Holocaust itself is uh, a hugely important event. We've, we've seen a lot of uh, political scientists and historians that have tried to shed light uh, on the kinds of examples that you're referencing. Um, Evgeny Finkel, for example, has uh, just a couple of years ago released a book called Ordinary Jews, which look at how, you know, Jews who are living in, in pretty dire circumstances try to resist um, uh, their persecution by the Nazi forces. And so I think, yeah, we are trying to uh, be a part of a larger research agenda that is, is really centering the question of civilian agency under such moments of duress, right? And uh, what we find is actually really interesting. You know, for example, one of the uh, common tendencies in this kind of research um, is to frame this as fundamentally a moral question. Right. Um, and, and to view those who, who, who choose to stand up in, in the face of, of such uh, brutal forces as, as being driven uh, by some logic or by, by some sort of ethical or moral imperative. Um, and that, I think, is, is certainly true right? uh, for at least some part of the civilian population. But I think perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, what we actually uncovered in our research in South Sudan and Sri Lanka and in Congo uh, is that the vast majority of people who are who are surviving under such harsh conditions uh, are operating uh, according to much more instrumental logics. Right? Um, they are, uh, are are simply trying to survive, and in the context of, of survival, uh, can adapt and, and, and devise uh, very novel strategies through which they may have influence over uh, armed groups uh, in ways that don't rely any on any sort of moral suasion. Right. Uh, so, for example, in the case of Eastern Congo, one of the things that the Congo Research Group, who was our local partner in that country, uh, uncovered in during the wars in Congo in the early 2000s and 2010s, um, was that you know one of the key actors who intervened into those conflicts was actually the business community, right? uh, and they 
chose to get involved in the Eastern Congolese War, uh, uh, not because they were uh, moved by some sort of higher power, uh, but rather because the war itself was starting to affect their economic interests. And this was a very interesting part of the report that the Congo Research Group released uh, as part of this larger project, uh, is that they're able to trace the evolution of the business community. So initially, the business community was actually funding some of the armed groups who were operating in Eastern Congo and causing all of this misery. But then as the international community started putting pressure and placing sanctions and other and threats of prosecution on leaders of armed groups and their supporters, uh, it was an opportunity for the business community to pivot away from supporting the armed groups to actually trying to persuade them to put down their weapons. Right? And again, they didn't do this because they had some sort of moral awakening, but rather they started to understand that the, that the, that the conflict dynamics had shifted from a, a situation in which war was profitable for them to one in which the, 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 the sustenance of the war would actually start to have very negative impacts on their economic interests. And so, uh, you know, this is not a, uh, a, a nice narrative of, of, of people coming to enlightenment and, and rejecting their, their, their previous ways, but rather, um, you know, I think a much more honest depiction uh, of how civilians in, in these contexts are, are forced to make often very, very difficult choices but importantly, from a policy perspective, can be persuaded uh, to do things that are in the interest of the larger society. Well, you're, you ended up exactly where I wanted to go next, which was the policy question, the sort of policy implications of what you've done. Um, so, you know, as it happens, I was listening last night to a psychologist from Amherst College named Catherine Sanderson, who had just written a book about, uh, you know, why do people... You know, stand up for others. Is, I've forgotten exactly the title, but you know, it was this question of civil courage again. Um, and her sort of main takeaway uh, point, I guess, was that you know this is all about social norms, and you know whether people behave well or you know perhaps not so well in moral terms is really kind of a function of the prevalence of certain social norms or the kind of reactions that people will get from the people they're around at, you know, specific times when these kinds of uh, events take place. So, um, you know, I wonder, you know, can, can one intervene in these, in these kinds of situations in policy terms to promote better outcomes? Yeah, it's a really tricky question. I mean, I think one of the things that we took on explicitly in the report uh, was the role of the donor community in, in, in these sorts of situations where civilians are confronted with mass atrocities. Um, you know, and, and the literature on it is actually quite mixed. So we were uh, trying to uh, assess uh, a couple of different hypotheses. One that looked at uh, the international community's involvement as uh, fundamentally positive. Another that said that uh, international donors, international NGOs can actually play a negative impact uh, on these types of dynamics. Um, and, you know, the, the, the outcomes from the case studies were, were not conclusive one way or the other. Right? What we saw is that in certain situations, uh, there are positive things that the international community can do, um, but that often the mechanisms through which they intervene in these conflicts are, 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 are faulty. Right. So, for example, one of the most interesting things I think we found across all three cases uh, is that when we asked each of the partner organizations to define civil society, uh, they had a very different understanding of what civil society was from how international donors perceive what is civil society. Right. Uh, so if you've ever spent time in Eastern Congo or South Sudan or Northern Sri Lanka, where 
which were our three research sites, um, you will notice that there's a massive prevalence of international non-governmental organizations. Uh, and the fundamental inclination is to, to view them as a stand-in for local civil society. Right? Um, and most of them rely on funding from the international community in order to uh, to engage in their activities. What we saw consistently across all three cases uh, is that from the perspective of locals in these communities, they did not consider them to be civil society actors, right? Um, and they did not perceive them as playing a fundamental role uh, in shaping the outcome of the conflict one way or the other. Instead, they pointed our attention towards uh, traditional leaders, to business leaders, as I already mentioned in the case of Eastern Congo, uh, to informal groups, to, 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 to a whole set of actors who are often completely overlooked by the international community because they do not meet the standards of what we consider to be legitimate non-governmental organizations. And that even where non-governmental organizations were trying to intervene into these conflicts, uh, because of the legal and economic restrictions on their behavior, uh, they would rarely take positions that would challenge uh, power holders within these societies, right? So in the case of Sri Lanka, for example, uh, almost all of the NGOs that were receiving funding from international donors uh, did not want to be didn't want did not want to be perceived as being hostile to the Sri Lankan state, right? Because they feared that if they criticized the Sri Lankan government too openly, then they would be kicked out of the country altogether. So instead, the kinds of activities they engaged in would always foreground the question of reconciliation. Now, the problem, of course, uh, is that they're talking about reconciliation at a point that the government is actively engaged uh, in mass killings of the minority community. Right? Um, and instead of speaking out against those mass killings or helping the victims of those mass killings flee the situation or deal with the situation that they're confronted with, the NGOs are running workshops uh, on ethnic reconciliation. Right. Um, so over and over in the reports, what we saw from 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 our, our country researchers who were all uh, based in the countries who are from the countries that they're writing about uh, was this disconnect between what the international community thinks they're doing in these situations uh, and who the actual relevant actors are on the ground uh, who are actually intervening uh, on behalf of civilian communities facing episodes of mass atrocities. Right. So uh, I guess I want to move now to uh, somewhat more empirical um, uh, questions or, or, you know, concrete cases. Um, you were recently quoted in an article in the New York Times that was addressing the kind of ways in which a number of African countries were going through, uh, you know, experiences of uh, leaders, dictators uh, abusing their, you know, positions in government to, you know, thwart the will of the people. Uh, and you, um, you know, have particularly been paying a lot of attention to the situation in Sudan. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that. I mean, Sudan, uh, a few years ago when the South, when the South uh, separated, it was a kind of shining moment, it seemed, of uh, popular uh, will sort of being, uh, being, vindicated and and pretty much since then it's been a downhill story so i wonder what you could tell us about what's been going on in sudan and south sudan sure uh so you know for about 10 years now i've been uh, working on social movements and popular movements in, in africa and elsewhere um i've been paying particular attention to a number of african countries sudan uh, amongst those 
Um, and I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a pretty fascinating story. It's pretty uh, complicated to, to summarize, but I think um, the way that I try to understand it is that these periods of disruption uh, that, that, that have been going on in both Sudan and South Sudan uh, are, 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 are long-term historical processes, right? If we look at uh, kind of the post-colonial history of Africa, we have seen uh, potentially three such moments in which uh, the entire political system is come into question. Right. Uh, this was the, the sort of anti-colonial period of the 1940s and 50s, uh, which really led to the, the decolonization of most of Africa by the early 1960s. Right. These were periods uh, of tremendous uh, uh, uncertainty and, and ferment at the grassroots level uh, that eventually led to the expulsion of, of all of the European powers from the African continent. Um, then again, in the 1980s and 90s, sort of towards the end of the Cold War, when, when African countries uh, were, were subjected to some very harsh economic conditions due to the so-called debt crisis of the time, uh, you had a similar kind of uh, outbreak of, of protests, actually beginning in Sudan in 1985, um, that led to, again, a major process of, of transformation across African countries. Uh, this time, you know, of course, the Europeans were gone, but most of Africa in the 1980s were, were, were under various forms of authoritarian rule. Uh, and so you had these large-scale uh, uh, protest movements that eventually led to, by the 1990s, the majority of African countries adopting some form of democratic governance. Um, and I would suggest, and then we argued in our 2015 book, Africa Uprising, uh, that currently we're living through a third such period. Right. Uh, that we trace to a, a series of protests that breaks out in, in Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa in the mid-2000s. Uh, initially, these protests start to break out in different African countries, but are, are not particularly successful. And then, of course, by the early 2010s, with the so-called Arab Spring, which mostly takes place in Africa, um, you start to see a huge number of African countries uh, experiencing these large-scale protest movements. Sudan was part of that of this third wave, right? so that in in, in early 2010s, uh, partially related to the breakaway of South Sudan from Sudan, you had a group of activists in Sudan, in Khartoum, uh, who wanted to, to not only allow the South to break away and form its own country, but wanted to overturn the government in Khartoum itself, right? um, which, to be clear, was always the original intention of the founder of the Southern Secessionist Movement. He, he actually never spoke of secession. He would always talk about democratizing Sudan in order to make it a more inclusive country that would welcome Southerners into its national imagination. Right? Um, that didn't happen, of course. We know that South Sudan broke away. Um, but these activists in Sudan really wanted to carry forth his vision, the vision of John Garang, uh, and transform Sudan into a multi-ethnic, multiracial, inclusive democracy. And they tried uh, pretty much from 2012 to 2014 to spark uh, a large-scale uprising uh, of the sort that we saw in neighboring Egypt or Tunisia and elsewhere on the African continent. Um, but they were largely repressed by the very brutal regime of Omar al-Bashir, uh, who was Sudan's long-standing dictator. Um, this changed a couple of years ago, I think, as most of your listeners probably know. Uh, Sudan had a, a successful uprising that broke out. Many of the same activists who had been involved in 2012 to 2014 were involved in the 2019 protests that eventually led to the fall of the Bashir government. Um, and so... It has been a, a, a kind of um, 
uh, up and down process, right? So you have these moments in which the country gets a lot of attention, such as the breakaway of the South or the over, uh, overthrow of Bashir, uh, but they're usually followed by setbacks. And in these moments of setbacks, it's very easy to, uh, to, to, to take a, a pessimistic view about whether or not the revolution was successful. Right. Uh, and what I would suggest is that we need to uh, increase our, 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 our time horizons. Right? Most protest movements don't achieve their outcomes in a year or two. If we looked at something like the U.S. civil rights movement in 1961, uh, you might declare that it had failed. Right. Uh, despite the fact that activists had been mobilizing for civil rights since the 1950s and really the 1940s, uh, you know, trying to decide whether or not the movement had succeeded in 1961, you would say that it had failed only to, to say, wow, that was tremendous progress they achieved by 1965. Right? Uh, it's a decades-long process. And where Sudan is right now uh, is in a very difficult phase. The, the revolution was successful, but the military very clearly said that they would not leave power. Uh, so currently you have this uh, very complicated uh, arrangement in which the military and civilian leaders share power in a transition government. Um, you know, the military seems to have uh, somewhat of the upper hand in terms of this uh, the, this temporary arrangement. Um, and so the situation does look quite difficult. But, you know, I think what has been really important to, to acknowledge uh, about the protest movement in Sudan is that they have learned a lot from previous failures uh, and they have made a number of choices, most explicitly uh, being unwilling to leave the streets whenever they feel that their vision is not being advanced. Uh, in ways that have put pressure on the military component of the transition government. Right? Um, so I am, what I would say, cautiously optimistic. I, I don't think the story is is, is over. Uh, Sudan has been struggling with, with the COVID pandemic. Uh, obviously, the international community has not been particularly supportive of the democratic forces in that country. Uh, there are still pretty severe sanctions on the government, even though even as those are being negotiated by the by the Trump administration. Um, but I think fundamentally what I took away from my visits to Khartoum was uh, uh, a fundamental belief that, that people are not willing to let things go back to the way they were, right? Uh, that once you have experienced life uh, without the long-standing dictator, and Sudan is a very young country, right? Most young people in Sudan have lived under a single uh, president their entire lives, uh, but once they started having these conversations around 2012, 2013, imagining uh, what Sudan could be uh, without Bashir in power, I think it's almost impossible to put the genie back in the bottle, as it were. Right? Uh, and I don't believe that even if the military tries to, to usurp power from this transition government, uh, that they will be allowed to do that uh, by the Sudanese population. So I, I remain cautiously optimistic, even as I will acknowledge uh, that there are certainly very, very real challenges ahead. So does your cautious optimism extend to the rest of the con uh, the continent? I mean, I know it's uh, in some ways crazy to ask a question about Africa as a whole. It's such a diverse place, uh, which is, I think, often forgotten when we think about it. But uh, at some level, people like you get, you know, sort of seen as experts on the whole continent, even though you have, you know, it sounds like particular regional 
uh, focus to your work. Um, and of course there is the, you know, the larger issue that, uh, you know, relatively poor places tend to be not highly correlated with democratic forms of, uh, politics. And so, uh, I mean, things are improving in Africa. I mean, poverty has been reduced and was reduced at least before the pandemic in significant ways, uh, you know, advanced by the sustainable development goals and those sorts of things. And uh, the disease burden of African countries has changed very much because of its relative uh, economic improvement. But you know, how do you see the sort of picture for Africa, uh, you know, in the next decade or so? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first, I, I, I will definitely acknowledge Africa is 55 countries. I, I don't have any capacity or any desire to position myself as an expert on Africa, per se. Uh, but let me speak as a, a non-expert, right? I think uh, part of my, my interest in Africa is driven by my interest in humanity. We, uh, Africa is going to be the um, largest portion of the human population in our lifetimes, right? It is on track to be over 2 billion people. Um, it is the youngest continent already. Uh, it is growing at a tremendous pace. Um, you know, almost every major issue that we are dealing with as a species uh, is already uh, a pressing, urgent issue in the African context, you know, whether we're talking about climate change or capitalism or inequality. Um, all of these things are, are, are already crisis level on the continent, right? Um, and so I, I would speak as a human, not as an African expert, um, that, you know, we need to be paying attention to what's happening on the continent. And I prefer to be optimistic about it because if it doesn't work in the African context, uh, it's not going to stay in Africa, right? It's going to be of concern for our entire species. Um, and so that's how I sort of think about it in terms of uh, trying to look towards Africa, not to tell Africans how to uh, how, how to get through these things, but what can we learn uh, from their experiences on the front line of these human crises, right? Uh, how are they dealing with climate change? How are they dealing with the dark sides of capitalism? How are they dealing with uh, the rise of inequality? Uh, Africa has seven of the 10 most unequal countries in the world. Um, you know, I, I think we need to be paying attention to what's happening in African societies uh, in a way that, that certainly in the West, we just do not. Um, so I am optimistic because I think that uh, there is a, a lot that can be learned. And, you know, I especially pay attention to uh, these social movements and these, these African activists because I think they are confronting situations that are going to become more and more normal, even for those of us who think that we're protected in the West. Right. Um, one of the very problematic issues with, say, for example, the, the Trump presidency uh, is that, you know, people keep making these analogies that Trump is like an African dictator. Right? Um, and I think that's, that's a deeply problematic analogy uh, because in many ways, like we have it worse in the United States. Uh, when I see African civil society, when I see African social movements, I see individuals who understand the nature of the threat that they confront, right? who are fully aware of how to push back against very, very repressive forces. And I think what I've seen in the U.S. over the past four years um, is that, you know, people are floundering, right? The, the only approach that, that Americans have towards a, a Trump-like figure who may just be a more permanent feature of our, of our common future um, is, is to treat him as an anomaly, right? To, to view uh, the current political and economic crisis as, as a function of a single man. Right? 
And I think what we've seen in many African contexts, that was the tendency in the 80s and 90s. But if you talk to African social movements and African activists like I try to, um, they have a much more systemic and much more global analysis of the forces that they are confronting. So that it's not really just about, uh, say, Yoweri Museveni in Uganda, uh, but rather about Uganda's broader position within uh, international economic and political circles. right? Because... The reality is that Museveni will not live forever. He, he, you know, he, he's trying his darndest right now uh, to, to repress the opposition, to crush social movements in that country, uh, and he may succeed. You know, he may be able to steal one more election, one more term in office, uh, because he is supported very heavily by the United States, who relies on Museveni uh, to fight the war on terror in the Horn of Africa. But he is not long for this world. Right. Uh, and, and so what I see when I talk to people in Uganda and elsewhere it is a greater reckoning with how they have arrived at this larger situation that they confront. Uh, that's not simply about Museveni, but about how Uganda itself is often subjected to these larger economic and, and political forces in ways that work against the interests of ordinary Ugandans. Uh, and as I was trying to say, uh, I would say work against the interests of humanity generally. Right. So I feel like they're having these conversations uh, and, you know, I'm not I don't want to in any way romanticize their power or, or suggest that they've figured it out. Uh, but I think that being able to have an honest conversation about where you are is progress, right, is reasons for optimism. Uh, and I'm hopeful that that, you know, uh, from them, those of us in the West especially can learn about what it means to reckon with these real political and economic challenges that we are confronting and thus far seem unable to to address. Well, all of those are good reasons for us to have had you on the uh, podcast and to hear those kinds of insights about, you know, how to think about our own situation as well as that of Africa. Um, I wanted to come back to what you, you said something about, you know, uh, Africans confronting crises. And of course, there's one major crisis that's on our minds and presumably on theirs as well. And that, of course, is the coronavirus crisis. And I wonder whether you could say a little bit about how Africa is faring. I mean, uh, early on or relatively early on, I recall, uh, you know, the suggestion of some, uh, you know, observers of African uh, developments uh, suggesting that the Africans might, you know, come out of this relatively well simply because of a point that you made in your last uh, response, which was that Africa is the youngest population, uh, relatively speaking, on the planet. And uh, that, you know, relatively speaking, young people come through the coronavirus, uh, a coronavirus infection more uh, better than, than older people. So I wonder whether that scenario has played out to your knowledge and, uh, you know, how is the how is the virus affecting the Africans? Yeah, so I think, you know, to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, that, you know, it's a huge continent, many different uh, countries with, with very distinct forms of governance. Um, and, and so we're seeing huge variation in terms of how COVID is playing out that is much more about uh, national level factors than it is a continental wide dynamic. So, yes, uh, in some ways, you know, Africa's uh, demographic uh, spread, specifically the fact that it has such a young population, uh, has meant that there seems to be far fewer deaths associated to COVID uh, than we've seen in other major regions of the world, uh, even when compared to, say, countries of similar economic uh, development, uh, like India. Uh, African countries seem to be experiencing uh, 
less of a crisis from from the COVID virus. Um, but that being said, you know, I think that there's there's massive variation that we always have to pay attention to when we talk about Africa. Africa is 55 countries. Um, and in some places like West Africa, you have pretty strong forms of governance, uh, especially in the public health space, uh, because they have a history of successfully dealing with other types of pandemics. Uh, you know, in 2000, uh, I want to say 14 and 15, uh, there was a, a large outbreak of Ebola in several West African countries. There was a lot of concern um, that this pandemic was going to spread across West Africa and then into other parts of Africa and potentially around the world. Um, and, you know, you, you can compare, say, for example, Liberia, a very small country that is struggling to, to deal with a legacy of war, uh, that has a very weak economy that relies very heavily on donor funding, would say Nigeria, which is uh, Africa's largest economy, uh, has a very robust military, has you know, pretty sophisticated public health uh, institutes. And you know, initially the fear was that it was going to spread from countries like Liberia and Guinea and Sierra Leone, these smaller, weaker countries. And then when it gets to Nigeria, that's when we're going to face a major crisis because how can Nigerians deal with Ebola, right? Um, and what we actually saw is that the answer was very well, right? The, the Nigerian military uh, got involved in the Ebola response, that they were able to isolate uh, the few cases of Ebola that actually came into Nigeria very very quickly. Uh, there were some deaths, but it never led to this, this sort of doomsday scenario uh, in which Ebola spread rapidly through a very densely packed cities in Nigeria. That just did not happen. Right? It was a major public health uh, victory. And, and we know that a number of African countries actually do have this capacity. And so, um, you know, there's huge variation, right? Um, and I mentioned this variation because I think one of the, the difficult things with talking about COVID in Africa is that, as a number of African commentators pointed out, that in the early days of COVID, there was a lot of doomsday discussion around how badly Africa was going to be hit by the COVID pandemic uh, in ways that haven't actually been borne out by the data. Right? Uh, and I think a big part of that is that many African countries do have the capacity for dealing with pandemics. They're more able to uh, do very basic, simple things that we can't do here in the United States, like wear masks, right, or um, like maintain social distancing, um, you know, because I think they have this experience of pandemics that, that has taught people uh, in Africa that these are real serious issues that have to be dealt with in a serious fashion and that it's better uh, to listen to to, to science uh, than to turn these into purely political struggles as they have been turned into in the United States. That being said, um, I think that there are a number of countries in the African context that have not uh, adequately reported um, how seriously the population has been affected by COVID. Right? So even as I want to give credit to those African countries that have dealt with this uh, in an urgent and serious fashion, I'll point out countries like Tanzania uh, and Sudan, countries that I've spent time in, um, where you know it doesn't seem to me that the government is doing much. In Tanzania, uh, under the leadership of, of Magufuli, uh, you know, he was a COVID denial or, uh, denialist uh, in the early days of the, the, the pandemic. I have friends who, who live there. They tell me that they believe that the virus is spreading and the government is doing very little. Uh, to respond to it. Um, I think this is also related to the fact that Tanzania has become a much more authoritarian country over the past few years, uh, and that this is consistent with, with how many authoritarian countries, not all, um, sometimes deal with uncomfortable facts. Right? 
like the fact of the COVID pandemic spreading through their population without any uh, efforts by the government to, 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 to implement measures that would help uh, ensure the health of the population itself. So, you know, I, I think the picture is very, very mixed. Um, and I think it's important for us to, to, to really pay attention to uh, people on the ground who have a better sense of what's happening to understand uh, the larger political dynamics. And, you know, ultimately, you know, we can hope that, 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 that the stories saying that, that Africa has largely escaped the worst of the crisis are true. Um, but I think that we need to, to really trust uh, the science of, about what's happening here uh, and, 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 and get you know, real data, uh, because I think that's been strikingly missing from, from, from the debate around Africa and COVID, in, in, at least in the West so far. Well, that was indeed the uh, focus, at least one of the foci of one of our previous guests, Sam Clark, an epidemiologist and socio- sociologist from Ohio State, who's been working uh, in an international context with the former CDC chairman, Tom Frieden. Uh, but it was precisely about, you know, improving the data gathering uh, abilities of, you know, places that had less robust, uh, you know, statistical infrastructures and that sort of thing in order precisely, of course, to be able to try to improve the public health, uh, you know, situation of, of those sorts of countries. So, uh, but, I, you know, as far as your comments, I mean, I think it's, you know, maybe the big takeaway here is to remember that Africa is a very diverse place and many, many different kinds of uh, situations and orientations and capacities. And uh, I think that's been enormously helpful. So I want to thank Zach Mompili of uh, Baruch College for sharing his insights on what's going on in Africa at the moment, uh, and particularly with regard to his own recent work, especially on the Sudan or on Sudan. Uh, and uh, I want to thank Christo Voinov for his uh, technical assistance. Uh, that's it for this episode of International Horizons, and we look forward to having you with us next time. Take care. Thank you all. Thanks, Zach, and keep well. Thank you for having me.